Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast, where people gather around a table and we discuss the films that you'll never discuss in a film taste course. We're going through our summer series of the summer of growing up coming-of-age movies. We're very, very excited to be talking about Almost Famous, uh, which is the story of the uh, current career of one Jerry Seinfeld or perhaps something else. It's, it's something else. It is something else. Much different. He's Much almost different. famous. Uh, indeed, indeed. So we'll be talking about that. But before we get into any further, we need to dis- identify, not discuss, identify the disembodied voices speaking to your brain. Who are you across the way, sir? I am Arthur Gordon, and I am a ginger god. Indeed you are, sir. To my left, who are you? I am Dalton Stewart, and the only currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. There you go. My name is Dustin Sells, and Arthur, you are too sweet for rock and roll. Thank you. And uh, we are going to be talking all about uh, this Cam and Crow extravaganza of rock and roll love of the 1970s. And it's going to be a good time. But in case you're tuning in for the very first time and you don't know what to expect here on the Good Trash Genrecast, what you should expect is an analysis show, not a review show. And that means we might indeed spoil the film. Will they make it? Will they become actually famous rather than almost famous? What will happen with uh, young William, whatever his last name is, it's unimportant to me now. Uh, what will happen with all the various and sundry characters? We will discuss that in depth. But will not... Francis McDormand kill every member of Stillwater? I like to think so. <laughs> it seems like that's where it's going to go a that, couple of times. I think that's the plot of Three Billboards, actually, yeah. uh, where she kills them all. <laughs> And so we'll get into all of that, but not at first. At first, indeed, we will stay away from the spoiler territory. We will offer a synopsis from The Voice of Cinema. Then we will give our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews in which we avoid those spoilerages uh, with impunity. Then we move on into a game which may or may not involve a mild spoiler of this or other films in its orbit. And then finally we get down to business, and that time is when the spoiler bets are off. You've been warned. So without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema that great ginger god there atop the rooftop. I hope he jumps in the pool. I really hope he jumps in the pool. Uh, let's hear that synopsis, please. In 1970s, a high school boy is given the chance to write a story for Rolling Stone magazine about an up-and-coming rock band as he accompanies them on their concert tour. That is what happens in this film. Pretty much it. And he comes of age. A- a- aged comes. It does come. There's, oh. there's a coming. There, okay, we're moving right along. The coming. Oh, man. Let's hear um, some of those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. I go to you first. Dalton, what do you got to say about uh, Almost Famous? Did you like it? If so, why? If so, or if not, why not? This movie is too long. Uh, I do like it quite a bit, though. I just want to start with that caveat that it's just too long. I don't want to hear it. Yeah, you watched, Arthur watched the uh, the uh, bootleg director's cut as, a, as it's packaged on the, the home release. Um, I, I do like this movie quite a bit. I like Patrick Fugit a lot. Uh, I miss him. Uh, apparently, he's really good at the Outcast, I think is what it's called. It's a Showtime series about demonic possession or something. Apparently, mm-hmm. he's really good on that. Um, but I, I really like Patrick Fugit a lot. I have missed him dearly, so it was fun to go revisit this film, which I had uh, never seen all the way through. I'd seen it in bits and pieces on cable uh, several times, uh, but I never actually sat down and watched it start to finish. And uh, it is very clearly um, semi-autobiographical. I mean, uh, that is kind of the big selling point of the movie is that Cameron Crowe wrote this film uh, years back, and people kept trying to convince him to make it, and he finally did. Uh, and it and it it has that that feeling of you know uh, autobiography, 
Um, it does feel very personal, and I appreciate that about that. I appreciate the, these touches that feel so specific that they must have been lived in some capacity. Uh, I, I think the the move to uh, take all of these bands that he toured with while working as a rock journalist and turning them into one band uh, is the smart play. It's a good way to just kind of uh, contextualize uh, and really just bring together all these different coming-of-age stories that he experienced. Um, I, I we'll talk more as we get into analysis how this works as a coming-of-age film and how it compares to other ones we've talked about. Um, but, but I feel like there's a lot here to like. Um, there are characters that are super interesting that kind of just live on the periphery of the film, which is frustrating. I have Frieza Balk's character it gets maybe two scenes, and look, you know our stance on Frieza Balk on this show. She's great. She's perfect and should have been a huge star. Um, but even basically every female character in this movie uh, I, I could have done with more of. Uh, his uh, sister, played by Zoe Deschanel, only gets two scenes, and those are all really great. But um, and could have done with a lot more Philip Seymour Hoffman, as every film could have. Uh, but all of those things said, all of the I wish for this, I wish for this, um, you would be inclined to think I'm saying it should be longer. No, it's too long. It, it really is uh, working best in the middle stretch of this film, uh, where it kind of dedicates itself to being about a series of vignettes about being on tour with this band. When it kind of tries to resolve the plot in the, in the final 20 or 30 minutes of the film is really where it starts to drag, I feel like. Um, but those those sequences of hanging out are really entertaining and they're they're really enjoyable. And I, I think when this film is less focused on plot and more focused on characters, when it really hums, um, because there's just a lot of uh, fun talk about music, but also the ways in which uh, fame is corrupting. And I think that's really what I like about this film is the way it handles talking about not being cool. Um, the specifically the the conversations that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character uh, he's playing uh, an actual rock journalist whose name escapes me at the moment Lester Bangs thank you Dustin Lester Bangs uh, the the conversations that Lester Bangs has with young William Miller uh, based on Cameron Crowe uh, those conversations are great and they they really do kind of hit on something what does it mean to be a person who just talks about what other people do which is obviously something that the three of us can relate to a little bit I think. Um, but the, the idea of being on the periphery and not being cool and trying to, um, comment on the world and also be in it and, the the inevitable conflict of those two things I think is really interesting. Uh, Billy Crudup is great here. Um, another actor that I, I really enjoy that I don't feel like has had the career they should have had. And that's really everybody in this film, honestly, is, uh, this film's full of actors who, uh, are really, really interesting. And, uh, I don't think got the, the roles they should have gotten. And some of them are, are starting to get better work. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get to Elser instead, but, uh, yeah, overall I'm, I'm mixed to positive on it. I like it quite a bit. Um, but, uh, I don't feel like it works a hundred percent of the time, but when it works, it really does hum. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, did you like Almost Famous? If so, why? If not, why not? I, I actually did uh, enjoy it quite a bit, and it's it's hard for me to say, you know, it, it, it's I watched the extended cut, which is 40 minutes longer. Um, 40 whole minutes. Which is almost a, half a movie. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a lot. That's an additional uh, bit of information there. Um, I, I did like it, though. I, I, I think even, you know, for me, it's really long but for me it, it kind of was paced well and it might have been when i was watching it 
Um, I was able to just kind of get into it because um, mm-hmm. it was really late at night. But uh, I, I have to say, I, I, it's just in my wheelhouse. This this kind of story is, and and I, I enjoy. I, I think that Billy Crudup and Jason Lee are two of Hollywood's biggest missed opportunities. Yeah, man. Uh, Crudup here is just he's fantastic, and and to me he he uh, it's really interesting because I was thinking this. He reminded me a lot of James Franco, and I I, I wish. Billy Crudup had got a lot more of those Franco roles. Um, yeah. I, I think I would take him over Franco any day of the week. Um, but Jason Lee, too. Jason Lee is great. Uh, I, I've enjoyed him uh, for a long time. I first saw him in Mallrats and, and Clerks, and or not Clerks, but Chasing Amy. And that was my first experience with him. Uh, and I just think he's wonderful. I think he... He's got a real charm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's a good actor. And, and so I, I feel like there are a couple of missed opportunities. Fugit is great. Uh, this whole cast, you know, we've got some great up-and-comers here. Who never really got their due, except for a couple. Kate Hudson and Anna Paquin have probably yeah. gone to the most success. But even Kate Hudson, uh, as I was watching this, I, I the whole time I was like, why is Kate Hudson just done like kind of B tier romantic comedies for whole? Yeah, it's a shame because she's she's great, phenomenal in this movie. So I, I, I love the cast. I, I love the narrative. I, I I just think it's a fun concept for this kid to experience the world with a rock band. I, I think there's yeah. something really sweet and fascinating about that. I, I think. Uh, a lot of 15-year-olds, especially when they're into music, like, that's the dream, right? To just go live with these these people to see what that world's like. And it's it's a great concept. Um, but it is – and for me, with the, the director's cut especially, and I was, trying to, I was trying to do some research to figure out where those differences lie. I think a lot of it's in the early. I think there's a lot more extended stuff when he – when we find out that he has skipped a grade, he's older, uh, or he's younger than everybody else. I think there's a little more of that early on in the film. And I assume there's some in the in the middle where there's more maybe cities or more experiences in these cities or you know things like that. So I don't know where those differences are, um, but to me that middle section kind of felt repetitive. You know, it's go to a city, try to do the interview. Interview doesn't happen. Repeat. Uh, and so there's I, a lot of that in the version we watched as well. Yes. So. And so I just assume there's probably more of that. Uh, I, I also read a little bit just because I almost watched the director's cut. Yeah. Uh, it looks like there's a couple of scenes with um, the uh, the uh, Jason Lee character um, having uh, quite a few more scenes. It seemed like, which I thought was interesting, and made yeah. that made sense that his his scenes were scenes that were deemed not essential. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple more there. Him and Crudup have some interactions that got yeah. cut. Uh, there's some resolution to their relationship that got cut, and then there's a couple scenes with um, Patrick Fugit and uh, Billy Crudup that got cut. Okay, like. I, I, I kind of figured that's where it was. I assume all the stuff. Uh, I, obviously, the overdose is probably in there, um, mm-hmm. and then the uh, the the sirens. I, I'd call it the siren scene uh, with yeah. the three girls and and that's Fugit. in the main cut. Yep. Yeah, I figure that's there. Let's uh, deflower Opie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is a it's, it's a fun sequence. You know we. For a film that is full of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, it it is incredibly wholesome. Yeah, in in, way, in some ways that I find really interesting. When you realize that it's touring with a '70s rock band, yeah, yeah, I, I, and so and and they seem to they don't want to push this kind of lifestyle on him. Like he's along for the ride, but they've they tr- almost protect him. I guess they're in, very in a way. gentle with him. Yeah, yeah. And, and which is, is sweet. I guess I don't know. Um, I agree. Yeah, no, there is a real sweetness to uh, the, the way because. They they think he's older than he, yeah. he presents himself as being older. They yeah. don't find out till much later in the film how old he actually is. But even knowing that he thinking he's older, they they're gentle with him. They see this kind of 
unworldly person, and they there is a sweetness to the way that everybody interacts with yeah. him. Yeah, um, but I yeah for the most part I I liked it uh, quite a bit, and uh, again it's just in my wheelhouse. And I, other than length and some of the pacing stuff, uh, I I think watching the two hour movie, I would have probably liked it a lot more. I, I think it would have been a lot tighter. Uh, which I would have enjoyed quite a bit. But uh, as it is, I, I, I think it's great. I think uh, Cameron Crowe had a strong start to his career. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm positive on this one. All righty. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I liked it quite a bit, too. Uh, a lot of times the coming of age uh, story is about the sexual awakening. It is about experiencing a trauma. It is about uh, overcoming, perhaps, that trauma. This is more about the disillusionment of one's idols, and uh, which is an interesting, uh, sort of slightly different take on the coming-of-age story, is that he gets to hang out with his uh, with the, the band he loves, and he finds out, oh, they're not as awesome. They're made up of broken human beings, like all the things that you ever experience are. And uh, so that, as a, a narrative bit, is great. I think the acting's fun. And everything's wonderful there. I like the music. I like the use of lots of Zeppelin on there. Um, I also like the Zeppelin super fan character, uh, just for kicks and grins. Uh, played by a very young Jay Burchell. There is a lot very, of yeah. catch them before they're famous people in this movie. Yeah. Uh, What's his doodle from Modern Family plays the hotel clerk. Oh, yeah. yeah. There are tons of uh, soon to be very almost famous faces in yes. this movie. Yeah. And so, you know, that whole story of fame, the idea of the role of the critic is something I obviously find to be immensely fascinating. Lester Bangs writes some great rock criticism. If you have not read some Lester Bangs, you should. Okay. Uh, He he does some really, really solid work. Uh, So I assume the way they... That Cameron Crowe wrote those dialogue. Oh, he I, talks like Lester. That's exactly how he talks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And, and he and writes Ho- like that character talks. Right? And, and Hoffman, I think, nails what my. I mean, I've never actually seen an interview or listened to an interview with Lester mm-hmm. Banks, but that's what it sounds like to me. Fun fact: he, he uh, was very sick. Every day they shot, he had the flu or something for oh, all really? of this. And they only had him for a couple of days, and he was sick the entire time. Oh, Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it adds to some it, of that it, ennui he's got it, there. It does, yeah. right? Yeah. I think it works for the performance. So, yeah, that's okay with me. Uh, but, yeah, so, and, of course, Phil Hoffman. I mean, all the Phil Hoffman, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm all in. And uh, so just love that rock and roll soundtrack. Just love the idea of the 70s. Love the idea of the tour, the tour bus, and uh, the sort of the formina- formation of those little bands of gypsies uh, that are uh, rock and roll bands that they're Band-Aids and Groupies. Band-Aids is a hilarious Band-Aids is very euphemism. Good. And, it's very uh, good. Yeah, it's just good times. So I had a good time watching the movie. It is a little longish, but I wasn't mad about any of it, really. No. And uh, it's an interesting take on the coming-of-age uh, story because it's not only the disillusionment with one's idols, it's also the uh, the wicked confrontation with professionalization, uh, the expectations of others, and the, the I think the experience that many of us have when we find ourselves for the first time in our career not just like little jobs that we do, but something that's more like a professional career. As a young person who looks young, you go, I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. And that sort of uh, overwhelming bewilderment is uh, uh, an experience I definitely relate to as an adult uh, watching that film. Yeah, man. And so, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun, and I enjoyed it and had a good time. I'm not mad at all about having a wash. So there you go, dear listener. Our biases are generally pro, although we have some quibbles here and there. But we like it a lot, so we're going to keep talking about it. But we want you to talk with us, and you can do that um, via some things that Dalton knows about. Dalton, what are those things? Ah, yes. The fiery chariot leading us all straight to hell, social media. Now's the time in the show where I try to entertain Dustin and Arthur and try to gauge how bored they are and use that to figure out how much more quickly I should wrap this segment up. It's social media time. 
if you are wanting to be part of this conversation, which is what this is, uh, is it a book club that we record? Yes. Do we like it when you uh, engage with that? Absolutely. How can you do that? Good question. I will answer that for you. You can go to Twitter. That's at good underscore trash, where we talk all things good trash media, not just this show, but everything that we're doing. Uh, lots of fun stuff over there. Um, at us. It's fine. Don't at me personally. I hate that shit, but you can at the show. Uh, we're more than happy to field your questions. Um, how else can you get in touch with us? We're on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash good trash media. Go outside. You know what? Put them down. Not this week. You don't need to follow us. Just go outside. Go outside. Go talk to somebody. Spread the word on the show person to person, face to face. Go knock on doors. Okay, you know what? Nope. Not going to take responsibility for that. Don't go knock on doors. Dustin's shaking his head no. I agree. Not our official stance. Please don't go door to door trying to get people to listen to this show. It's a bad idea. But do go outside. Go enjoy other people's company. Would you like to hear about our Lord and Savior, Good Trash Media? Yeah, that's a bad idea. Yeah, no, we're not starting a cult. If you have a starched white shirt, a black tie, and a bicycle, (laughs) feel free (laughs) to go next door. (laughs) And just talk about a movie with a friend. Yeah, a friend. And if our name comes up. If it comes up, that's fine. And a friend. Good. Strangers, don't do it. Yeah. Don't don't go talk to strangers about this show. That that's just gonna get people mad at you. Um but but that Hey, whatever gets listeners, right? There's no <laughs> such thing as bad press. <laughs> oh my. The point is get off the fucking internet. It's it's cooking our brains and not in a cool way. I mean, yeah, enjoy enjoy your essays, enjoy your podcasts, get off the social media. It's it's not good for us. It's it's very bad. Um, how's a non-social media way that you can be part of this? Good question. Uh, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show however you put this in your ears. It's great for our visibility, uh, and it makes us feel good. Uh, another non-social media way? Send us an email. GoodTrashGenreCast at gmail.com uh, for your long-form feedback. And finally, if you want to help keep the lights on here at Good Trash Studios, uh, that's going to be Patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, we just sent out a, a patron uh, exclusive reward to our very own Keithan. Uh, Keithan is now the proud owner of a Blu-ray copy of Anger Management, starring his very favorite actor, Jack Nicholson. Uh, we actively picked a uh, not-great-Jack-Nicholson movie because that's what this show is all about, is finding the charm and the interest and the analysis in, lesser quote, lesser films. So uh, that, that's what you can look forward to if you become a patron, is us finding funny movies to send you. And if we don't know you as well as we know Keith, and we'll ask you some questions, kind of help figure out what you're into and tailor your uh, your Blu-ray. Um, Blu-ray's only for uh, higher-level donors. Uh, so, you know, shell out. Don't be a fucking cheapskate unless you want a DVD. <laughs> uh, that, so that's patreon.com forward slash GTM if you want to keep the lights on. And we're done. This podcast session is over, or... This segment is over. I'm done. Dustin. I thought you said podcast, I've, so I was ready to get my slammers out and uh, just go to town on you guys with my milk gap collection. Can we start a pog podcast? Podcast. A podcast. Uh, yes. That's, you, or a podcast. It's just us playing pogs. Okay. I, I don't it's know just the I've sounds of slammers. Is, the is there a pog pog? Yes. The original copyright holder of the pog I went to seminary with. Shut the fuck up. His name is Gary Langley. <laughs> okay. And he's a bishop. Now, what happened? You say the original copyright holder. Did he sell the copyright he to did. Like, Hasbro or whoever? Yeah, and it, it was it was all over everywhere. But the original idea of pogs was uh, he, he owned the company. Gary, really smart to get out while the getting was good yeah. because fads die. Way to see, see the writing on the wall, buddy. But, Those yeah. poor fidget spinner fellas now, or ladies. What? Oh, God. Can you imagine having stock in fidget spinners? Oh. You poor fools. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I own three. Uh, tell me about Gary. <laughs> What's Tell me the most interesting thing you can think of Gary, the inventor of Pogs, off the top of your head. Um, that he is a world-class drummer that toured at one point in his life with the Beach Boys, is also a bishop, and lives in Hawaii where he does his um, ministry work. Gary? Come on the show. I want to know everything. He may, be, he may be the most interesting man we know now. Can we get Gary on the praise down? Oh, no. I'm, oh, no, you don't, <laughs> no. You don't think he'd be into the praise down? No. Was, was Gary too cool? Is that it? D- Gary is not cool. Gary's not cool. Yeah. You're cooler than Gare Bear? Is that what you're saying? I might be cooler than Gary. Oh, Gare. Wow. Which is, yeah. You told me yeah. he toured with the Beach Boys and lives in Hawaii. Yeah. That doesn't, I mean, yeah, there, there, sometimes, you know, the sum is less than the parts. Gare Bear, breaking my heart. All right, well, let's move on to the next segment. Dustin, do that thing you do so well, much uh, like Paul Blart Mall Cop. Oh, yeah, it's time to play the game. And we are back with this week's game, which is our bands that we would like to go on tour with. That's right, bands that you would like to go on tour with, brought to you by Almost Famous, Almost Famous, starring fictional Almost Famous band Stillwater. There you go. Very, very good. Uh, Apparently mostly based on the Eagles and, um, oh shit, I already forgot. Um, they sound like the Eagles. Th- there was a. It was very funny to go through and look at the bands that Cameron Crowe had kind of like the stories that he had squished into one band. Um, there's several though. Uh, I think Zeppelin was part of it. Surely, but also uh, I feel like Yes was something. somebody mentioned uh, the Golden God thing. Apparently, was a thing that I think either Plant uh, or um, oh crap, I can't remember. I, I think it was Robert Plant said that frequently. Not Wall on Acid. Just, just it was just the thing he said. The thing he said. Uh, but there was a couple of stories about like. Uh, People had come out in their biographies later in life and been like, yeah, that story from Almost Famous. I'm pretty sure that that was about me. So, <laughs> so yeah. funny. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're a young upstart writing for Rolling Stone. What band are we going to write? Is that, that's the presumption, it, pretty right? Much we're touring it. with them to write about them, You're right? 15, and you get to go on tour with them and tra- travel through time if necessary. I, oh, trust me. It's going to be necessary for a couple of mine. Yeah. So, there you go. Um, Arthur, I'm going to you first. What's the first band? What's your number first pick? for a band you'd like to go on tour with? Uh, my first pick is a, a country band that I, I really enjoy. Their name is the Zach Brown Band. Um, okay. okay yeah. Most famous for Chicken Fried. Um, but I actually got to go watch them perform here in Oklahoma City. And this was just a group of guys who just jammed out for like three hours. Right? And so I feel like it would just be a good time of just being around. I just love being around incredibly talented musicians and just watching them play. Yeah. Because it's just so fascinating to me to see guys that can just pick up a, a guitar and just do stupid stuff with it and like just to be I able can to pick hang up out. a guitar and do stupid stuff with it but will it sound good he means, it's a, it's he a, means stupid good it's a different kind yeah. of stupid yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're just like swinging it around like a baseball bat i thought it was a hat I you're like trying to do. sweep with it you don't know what you're going on so you're so short you noodle okay <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I, I just that idea of just like hanging out with a group of guys who pr- probably just want to sit around and just jam like yeah it's real relaxed real chill uh it's kind of the opposite of you know, I, I doubt that's the case. They may be wild party animals. I don't know. Uh, but I like the idea of thinking that they're just in the tour bus just jamming out, uh, coming up with stuff and something kind of relaxing and fun about that. 
Nice. I like that first pick. What do you go for for your first pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? My first pick, I'm going to go ahead and time travel. Uh, I, I try to stick to, with the exception of one of my other picks, uh, for two of them, I try to think, all right, what were, what were the groups that I was really into when I was, you know, William Miller's age, 15, 16, what really was I, I, I into? First pick, I'm going to go back to the mid-90s. I'm going to tour with MCA, Ad Rock, and Mike D. Uh-huh. Uh, I want to tour with the Beastie Boys. But I don't want to tour with them while they're partying. Because, look, I'm I'm at a point in my life where that just does not appeal to me. I'm old. I've partied enough. Uh, I want to hang out with them when they're music nerds who are also in their late 20s, uh, not when they're in their early 20s on that License to Ill tour. Uh, but, yeah, when they're touring with, you know, like Falls Boutique or uh, Check Your Hat, something like that, uh, one of the middle records. Um, but, yeah, just watching that group, I mean, if you look at the Beastie Boys discography, you see, like, a really interesting evolution of a group of musicians and, like, going from doing this kind of parody of uh, of white guy hip-hop before it was even a thing uh, with that first record, realizing that people did not get that it was kind of a, a satire and then becoming more serious and really doing interesting music production stuff uh, and becoming kind of music nerds, honestly. I mean, they put out a whole record of instrumentals towards the end of their career. Right. I mean, so, like... I think that'd be a really cool group of people to hang out with, people who know a lot about music or fascinated with, you know, being part of their own music production and also just notoriously funny guys uh, and also lovers of cinema. So, yeah, that is my first pick is the Beastie Boys circa, let's say, 92 to 94, somewhere in there. Nice pick, nice pick. Um, uh, mine is sort of cinematically inspired a little bit. I love uh, Penelope Spheris's uh, The Decline of Western Civilization, mm. Volume 1, and I would love to have been on tour with Black Flag yeah. as that transition to Henry Rollins is happening and seeing all those guys from the Germs and, you know, I mean, just all the bands, you know, that are going on, that are sort of in the orbit. But that experience of touring that is also suffering. We don't have enough money. The van is not working. That real green room ass story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, very, very green room without the Nazis and the murder and the death. Yeah, uh, but running out of gas, sleeping on people's couches. Yeah. And just being a, a fly on the wall, hanging out. People are – they're writing the songs. They're coming up with the ideas. They're they're talking about politics. They're talking about life. They're talking about what it means to be authentic or what it means to be real. They're slamming six-packs. And they're, they, the six-packs are yeah. definitely happening uh, quite a bit. And that would – would, it would just be fun to be there in the – the energy of that moment, the fact that Henry Rollins was sort of a sometimes roadie, and then one day at a at a particular uh, concert, got up to sing in in replacement of the of the previous lead singer, and then just got hired on the band. That sort of it's a great story. Crazy creative energy would be just awesome to be uh, front row watching. And can you imagine? Damn, there's no way Black Flag would have let a Rolling Stone writer tour with them. But if somebody had gotten to like write about that transition, oh, like for goodness. a major publication. It would be a story for the ages. Yeah, it would and be it's, And now awesome. nobody got to write about that. Now it's just oral histories, which mm. are also fine. But, uh, yeah, sometimes an at-the-time journaling is uh, very cool. It would have been cool. would have been Good very pick. cool. So, Mr. Arthur Gordon, I go to you now. What is your number next pick for bands you'd like to be on tour with? Uh, I think I'd go with you, too. I, I think there could be some really man, interesting conversations. Show, yeah, are we, are we going now or are we going back in time? Probably back in time. Yeah. Earlier. But, the Joshua uh, Tree era? Yeah. I just I feel like there'd be just some fascinating conversations taking place on that bus, just life and philosophy. What and does music. Bono talk about when yeah. no one's watching? <laughs> does he make a sound? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I want to. Yeah, yeah. I just good yeah. pick. Yeah, I think it'd just be fascinating more than anything. Just 
to be there and to be in that that presence of that group and just to see yeah what goes on what what are those off 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 stage conversations like what what's the behind the scenes drama with the uh, two? um I so, would just yeah. want to write down all of the edges settings on everything <laughs> it's like how do you make that sound man so yeah. yeah cool very very cool all right mr dalton sir what is your number next pick for band you'd like to be on tour with uh, my number next pick is another band or group that i was a very very big fan of right around 1516 and it is the white stripes uh for for similar reasons one I want to get to Jack White before he got Rich Guy Weird, uh, which is which is like barely weird. Let's be honest. Yeah. Rich Guy Weird's like barely weird, but he's definitely Rich Guy Weird. Kind of seems like a jerk these days. I want to go back to like 2003, uh, you know, maybe right after, uh, right before White Blood Cells, that third record where they really broke out. Right around that era, hanging out with Jack and Meg, seeing what I want to know what Jack White talked about when no one was watching. I want to know what he talked about before he was super rich. I want to know what it was like to be on tour with a uh, couple that were, you know, divorced from one another. Like that that mid era, right before they break huge, I think would be fascinating. Um, just being on that tour. Plus, look, by the time I had my own money and uh, the uh, the will and desire to go see bands that were touring, they weren't a band anymore. Uh, so that was a missed opportunity for me in my life. And, uh, I would like to go check that out because I, uh, still like those records, man. They're still good. They're still very good. A band I still like a lot. And, uh, honestly glad they're not around anymore. I feel like most, name me two, name me four bands. Name me four bands that put out more than five records that are good. Exactly. You can't do it. Any band that lasts longer than a decade really eventually starts to go downhill. So uh, I like I like bands that went out in their prime, and that that necessitates the need of a, of a time machine sometimes. So there you have it, my second pick, the White Stripes. There you go. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Donaldson. Here's a band that I want to pick for my number next pick. That is not uh, I, I I can't even name a single right now from the band, but I, I've heard some of their music, and it's fine. It's mm. not my favorite stuff, but the uh, the the legend. The legendarium of their touring, of their uh, those who follow them around as they go on tour, the the, the groupies, the people around them. I want to tour with the Grateful Dead. I knew that guys. was going to be. Yeah, I knew that's where this. I was mean, going. I just I have to see that. Yeah, you want to know about the legend. Yeah, I just you want to see if it's true. What is going on? What is this community like? You know, it's like Burning Man on tour. And yeah, yeah, I'm like okay for like a decade, and and that would have been a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, and like I said, just one tour, just go across the southwest united states it's got to be the southwest and uh once you do that you know i'd probably be done uh but i want to be a witness i i want to witness them do the thing that they do so um jerry garcia and the grateful dead that is my number next pick your number last pick mr arthur gordon comes now look the appeal of this whole idea of touring of the band is just to see this rock and roll lifestyle and you got to go big or go home Mm -hmm. and i'm i want to tour with the rolling stones just one time. Yeah. I'm not going to judge you. I know it's not a, not a bad pick at all. I just need to know. I feel yeah. like it has to be legendary. Do I feel you, like every night has to just be epic. With you're out with Keith Richards yeah. and Mick Jagger. Like, it's got to be just it, it's insane. Be before the disco experiment or after? Probably pre. I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, early. I, I'm kind of curious stones. about touring with them now. I want to know what mids, I want to know what Keith Richards yeah, and Mick stage. Jagger were like in their yeah. 70s, honestly. Either, one of the extremes, either really young yeah. or right now. Yeah. I, I, it's just got to be. I, I think this is a story I heard about. Jagger, um, but I, it doesn't matter. Uh, whoever it was, a famous rock star. They just said something to the effect of, "I'd like a diet coke," oh. and then one just showed up. 
What was that on? I you you know the story too. Yeah, it was some. I was watching an interview or something. Yeah, it was somebody talking about like writing about them or something. on Saturday Night Live maybe or something like that. Jagger was on Saturday Night Live. Shit, that's exactly what it was. What's it from? Oh, uh, we were listening to a podcast. We must have listened to the same. I think it was Sudeikis. It was. I think it was Jason Sudeikis telling the story on yeah. maybe WTF or something. I don't know. But yeah, somebody I've heard this story before. Yeah, that uh, somebody who was not nearly as famous as Mick Jagger was just like observing him, and I think you're right. I think it was somebody that was on an SNL cast yeah. member. And yeah, Mick Jagger just says shit like "I'd like a Coke," or like it's Mulaney. It was on his. That's on his new stand up. Yep, you're right. It was John Mulaney. Yeah, thank you, Arthur. I knew. Yeah, okay. I'm glad we could figure out where the story came from. It just shows up. Yeah. How does that happen? You reach a certain level of stardom, and just you ask for. You don't even ask for things. It just I appears. want a Coke. And a Coke shows up. Yeah. No one should be that famous. Yeah. That's it's wild. It's insane. But I want to see what it's like to be around that person. Yeah. Because how – when when does that person stop being a real person? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Good pick, Arthur. Very, God. very yeah. good pick. All right. What is your number last pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Uh, my number last pick is a – much like Arthur's first pick, a band that I have actually had the good fortune or a group that I've had the good fortune to see live. Uh, this is going to come as no surprise to anybody who listens to this show a lot. Uh, if you've listened to the show enough to get a glimpse into what I like musically, uh, it's Run the Jewels, the the only group that I actually wouldn't mind touring with now because they're in their 40s. That's, that's the speed that I can handle. I can handle hanging out with a couple of guys who are in their 40s on tour because they're not going to want to go party. They might, like, go out somewhere once or twice, but they're just mostly on a bus, like, talking about shit and uh you know doing stuff that sounds fun i can hang out with that in fact that offers on the table i would do that right now i would right. literally do that right now this very moment i would go i don't know anything about writing about music but uh i'm really good at talking about movies i i think i could put two and two together i would i would do that immediately so oh. yeah that is my final pick run the jewels i feel like lp and killer mike that's that's exactly the speed uh of hanging out that i'm up for is the speed of hanging out the guys in their late 40s too nice 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 all right well, early 40s rather my number last pick um like my black flag pick in which i wanted to be around a scene as much as i wanted to be around the particular band i also say this and so i want to be 20 when this is happening okay. i want to be hanging out with these guys when they are 20 which uh would be right around 1992 91 uh at which time i was not 20 and what were you like 19 i was like 70 and uh, shut up and die. <laughs> uh, and I like to go on tour with Pearl Jam. Um, yeah, I, mean, I mean, this is my favorite band out. of all yeah. time. But it's, Look, just like you knew I was going to say Run the Jewels, I knew you were going to say Pearl Jam. <laughs> but not not just, you know, to be around them, but to be around the guys from Nirvana, who, although they had some beef with them. Be around the guys from Alice in Chains. Be around the guys from Soundgarden. You want to be around them when they're almost famous. Yeah, all almost famous in that Seattle grunge moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, talking old stories about what was going on with Mother Love Bone, what was going on with Green River, and some of these other sort of proto-bands that sort of brought this about to hang out with some of the cats from Sonic Youth um, that were big yeah, influencers, man. and uh, just to be in that great moment where grunge blew up uh, before it got to be all Stone Temple Pilots and, you know, gross, um, that would have been awesome. And so, yeah, that would definitely, they're not quite, fa that, that just the moment before 10 is released, yeah. that's when I want to tour with Pearl Jam, and it would be Lots and lots of fun. So uh, buy me a time machine and uh, an elixir of youth and send me there yes. so I can experience all of that. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our picks. They are very personal and very um, definitional of who we are, I think, as people. Well, we'd love to hear yours as well, and you can do that via those magical means of social media already mentioned. I don't know that I would say magical. 
unless we're spelling the magic with a K, in which case, yes, okay. Okay, sure, whatever. Yeah, chaos, right? Yeah, the chaos magic. Chaos magic of social Look, media. Social media is definitely on that left-hand path shit. For sure. For sure. So there you go. I think now, though, it is time <laughs> to get down to business. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> You're the worst. And we're back. Silver Fox Age. Oh, did I? No, did I? Did I was it? Did I? Did I come a little too close to home there? I I, I don't want to talk about any of this stuff anymore. Uh, we are going to talk about Almost Famous, and we're going to bring some spicy analysis to this film. Uh, the first thing I think we want to talk about is I want to talk about criticism. I, I think the the film sort of invites that conversation, and so uh, Phil Hoffman's advice as Lester Bangs uh, to young William is not to be friends, to be brutally honest and sincere right those are the things that we have are unmerciful right honest and unmerciful honest and unmerciful and that is what you have to do in order to write good criticism and you know we are doing some you know we say this is an analysis show not a review show that we're not but we are critics and to what extent do you find it useful to be a fanboy and to what extent does fanboyness get in the way? I mean, that's the first thing. And what 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 makes good criticism happen is like the secondary part of that question. What do you guys think? I think for me, uh, addressing the fanboy section of this question, I, I, I think a lot of the MCU, right? These are movies, the Marvel, the Marvel films, uh, the ones you know. If we talk about it all the time, we're tired. You know, we're ten years into this experiment. Uh, but as soon as I see uh, this trailer for uh, Black Panther with Run the Jewels on the background, uh, I'm hyped. Yeah. I, I'm ready. I'm ready to be there, you know, opening night, whatever. Um, and for me, it's always a danger because I'm so kind of caught up in that moment that I don't want to give a review of it. Like, I don't want to try to put down my thoughts because I'm usually swept up in, in the emotion of the moment and, and things like that. And so I want to try to give myself time or, or a second viewing so I can kind of uh, tune out the feelings uh, that kind of accompany that. Same thing with, like, the Star Wars stuff. Um, it's hard for me to assess some of those things uh, if it's something really near and dear to my heart uh, on that initial watch. Um, and so I think it can – I mean, I think it can cloud uh, your your view uh, if you're really into it, if you are you know, a diehard fanboy or something like that. And so I think it, it, it is kind of dangerous not to have those knee-jerk reactions and start seeing – declaring at the top of your lungs it's the greatest thing ever you know and and time i think tells uh you know if it resonates after a few days or a few months you know i don't really care that much about infinity war i i thought it was a great time but i don't really remember that much uh, about the movie uh, it's two and a half hours and it was all action i could tell you that but i can't really tell you minor plot details half you know. of everybody dies yeah that's, that's all i got spoiler alert <laughs> It's made a billion dollars. It's been out for like three months now. I assume everybody has seen the yeah, movie. If you haven't seen the movie, the internet has spoiled it for you at this point. Yeah. I'm not, it's fine. Nobody I, gives well, a shit. Well, I don't care. And well, that, I know you don't. And they're all, they'll, they'll all return anyway. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, the stakes never really mattered in that game. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think you have to be careful. I, I think in criticism you have to kind of keep that fanboyness in your, your back pocket and try to – approach whatever the medium might be uh, as as kind of subjectively and objectively as you can and be even killed and just kind of lay everything out on the table and you know it's it's easy to kind of get wrapped up and say oh i love this and i don't see any flaws in it but 
I think if you dig deep and if you're a critic who has some uh, value to your your you know your opinion your thought, you'll find those things and you'll point them out. And you know, even if you you, you still love the thing, but you can acknowledge you know where it's wrong. I, I think there are two kinds of critics. There are people who watch a movie, and it could be any movie. It could be you know it could be object. I mean, I, I see this sometimes online. People don't think a film can be like subjectively bad. Like movies can be badly made. That's, I mean, bad filmmaking is a thing. Bad editing is a thing. Like, but a film that is poorly made can also be good. Yeah, and that's yeah. And I think there are two types of, especially I see this on Letterbox a lot. I, th- I think people when they just love a movie, no matter how poorly or well made, you know, badly made or well made, it is it's a five star movie for them. You know, uh, and I think it's just everybody's different tastes or whatever. But I, I, I think to be a, a critic is to hold all that into account and kind of. Especially when you're doing it for the people, you know, for the people or whatever, as most critics traditionally have, uh, it's being that kind of buffer that's able to filter out the different elements and aspects to be able to open up a conversation about the piece. What about the idea of access? Oh, I'm I'm I'm, I'm ready to jump in on that. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we're not done yet. Okay, well, go ahead. I, I love what Arthur's saying, uh, but I I think you're absolutely right about the fanboy thing, Arthur, uh, to bring that in. Um, because it is a huge part of it. And I, I think, I mean, there's a reason the three of us don't do criticism as a full-time gig. It doesn't pay well. Uh, it, it's hard to make a living at it. And mm-hmm. the only people who would choose to be critics of anything are people who love it. And I think that gets lost sometimes when yeah. uh, when people who are just fans and not critics of art see a, a work that they really like torn to shreds. They're like, well, critics don't get it. No, critics do get it. They like movies more than you. I fucking promise they do because they get paid jack shit to watch them. All the time. Uh, and I think that's that's where it comes from. It has to come from a place of love. Uh, and, and I think the job of a critic, as you said, is to admit that all art is purely subjective and to basically justify your taste to the audience and say, I think this is good, and here is why I think it is worthwhile. And I, I think that's what it comes down to is justifying your very subjective opinion to the masses and being articulate enough and knowing enough about the, the material to... Uh, really articulate that opinion in a specific way. And I think that's why, um, you know, uh, Pauline Kael is somebody that we really look up to on the show and is part of the reason that her 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 quote became the name of this show is she did something that was really impressive, which was being able to talk about the objective quality of the filmmaking and then the more subjective personal taste and then, you know, the cultural and political context around a film. And I think all of those things are important about when talking about – all of those things are important when talking about a piece of art – I think, as Arthur mentioned, that that being a fan can be dangerous, especially when you become too much of a Lester Bangs. Mm-hmm. And I won't shout out any film critics. I'm not going to put anybody on blast. But I think there are some critics who cannot accept the serialized filmmaking model of the MCU and will write off the points at which it does work. Because, again, while I'm right there with you, Arthur, I get simultaneously excited and annoyed with it all the time. I, I think it can be easy to be like, well, I don't like that this is where film's going, so I'm not going to engage with it. Well... Too bad. It's where film's going. We've got to engage with it. We've got to talk about it. And we've got to try and see where does it work. When it doesn't work, why not? And why do we think that this model of filmmaking doesn't work? You can't just say you don't like that we're serializing and uh, cinematic universifying all film. You can't just say that. You have to say why you think that's bad. And I think that's where the danger comes in is where your being a fanboy turns into you being an old fanboy who doesn't like change in the medium that you love. Uh, and I'm sure we'll, as the three of us get older, I'm sure we'll have something new in film that'll drive us insane when we're in our 50s talking about movies. But I think it's important to try and hold that 
that context and not become a Lester Banks who just says everything's trash. They're killing rock and roll. Well, yeah, Lester, they did kill rock and roll, but you know, there were other forms of music that came about because of that punk came about because rock and roll and big fat quotes killed it. Uh, hip hop came about because white people stole rock and roll. Uh, mm-hmm. All of these really interesting things happened in music because of the commercialization of rock and roll in the late seventies. And I think, I think that's where that fanboy thing uh, comes into in play in another way is, not becoming too jaded. Right. Well, there's the fanboy thing, and I'm, I think you guys dealt with that very, very well. But there's another aspect in which uh, the film wrestles with the idea of friendship, that as you are on tour, it's um, a big problem as the enemy, quote-unquote, to become friends with the band, right? And, and there's a pre- – I mean, I felt the pressure, even when it's somebody we barely knew. When we've been reached out to by, um, say, a small independent filmmaker, and they want us to look at their movie, and I want to maintain that connection. I want to – great. I, it's wonderful that I have access to this film um, that maybe I wouldn't have had access to at any other time in my life, and I want to keep having access. You want to keep being on the bus on tour with the band and if their record is not your cup of tea you are tempted not to say so to what extent is it useful or is it um you know pertinent for a uh, critic to maintain a great amount of distance uh with the uh, the artists that are making the art and uh, to what extent is um having that nearness and that closeness and that friendship also useful because i do think it wrestles with that idea as well what do you guys think about that uh, friendship with the artist well, I, I mean, I think I mean, you look at the Hitchcock Truffaut book. One of the great pieces of like film criticism, autobi or film criticism biography that only came out because a critic and a filmmaker became friends. And I think it is important for the artist and the dissector of art to have something of a relationship. But you're right; that does paint you into a corner sometimes. And I, I think the the thing there is maybe don't be friends with somebody you're not a fan of. Um, I, I think that's where it comes into play. Don't don't become friends with an artist that you're not willing to become close enough to them that you're not that you're going to be able to call them out. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, you know. I, I think the wall is important. I think it's less there uh, because you know critics don't do tour pieces. You know, you don't tour with the director as they're you know trying to uh, do a roadshow of their film. You know, it just doesn't happen. The interactions are you know short interviews, not you know long term followings. Um, but you, you see that happen. You see filmmakers talking about a particular critic, like that gave them a particularly nasty review and it, them taking it personally. And I think that just becomes about how you talk about art. And I, I think the three of us are not fans of mean spirited film criticism. No. Um, even when something's trash, like, uh, well, I think the meanest we've ever been to something is the film Jack by Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, movie sucks. Uh, yeah, movie sucks. Uh, and, and that's that. That's a, a, a weird piece to be at. Uh, we also have the the good fortune to be removed from new releases, as Arthur mentioned. You know, it's easy to get swept up in the hype. We don't talk about new releases that often. We're usually talking about things that have been out for 10 to 20 years. So that's a little bit easier. But if you're talking about something on opening weekend, somebody's you know career hinges on how well that opening weekend goes yeah it, it could be hard like i can't imagine being friends with francis ford coppola the weekend jack came out and having to write a review of jack mm. i mean yeah that would suck and i i think there is to some extent you do have to keep those walls up unless you're willing to have a relationship that allows those walls to go down if that makes sense absolutely um but yeah i've, I've had that before when uh there's uh, some filmmakers we talked to uh when we uh, Arthur and I were doing people's history of film that um 
thankfully that never happened that I watched something and it was bad. Um, but there were moments where I was like, man, I hope this is good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I hope this isn't bad. Because uh, I don't know how I'm going to talk to this person. Lie through your teeth. Yeah. Huh? And I think you have to lie sometimes. I think, honestly, that's it. You have to, or at least tell the truth very delicately. Well, I was going to say, I think it's how you approach that conversation. I mean, yeah. if you're, there's animosity or if you're on the attack, mm-hmm. like, but I think there has to be this understanding that it's a professional relationship. When when it becomes this critic filmmaker, critic artist conversation, there's this level of professionalism that has to take place. You're almost coworkers to a certain extent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think one of the... A recent story, and I heard it on the Next Picture Show, and I can't remember the, the critic or the I think it's the director of uh, what's the movie? I killed we killed the giants. I killed giants. It's uh, I don't know what it's called. I think it's a foreign film. I'm not mistaken. Okay, but anyway, the, the critic uh, said something on I think on Twitter about how I know they what you're talking the about. Film. It just came out like a year ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, the direct the director was a bit kind of taken back and confused, and out of that conversation they went to have coffee or lunch together and had an actual in-depth conversation to parse through each other's thoughts about the the story uh and i think that's kind of the nice beautiful thing about it is being able to have those conversations to be able to open up and expand on the art or the thoughts behind the art i think i think it's all in how the conversation is approached and we just live in such a toxic time with things like twitter where everybody's thoughts are out in the world instantly um, and nobody wants to take anything back or they don't think before they tweet. Mm-hmm. And it just, I think the poisonous conversations stand at the forefront more often than, than not. And, and I think that's the kind of the dangerous thing, but I, I mean, it's hard, you know, I'm not, I'm not friends with Cameron Crowe. I'm not friends with, you know, Steven Soderbergh. I, I kind of wish I were cause I'm sure it'd be fun. Um, but yeah, just to have those conversations, I, I think if you're a friend, like an actual friend. Like I think if you're close enough to call somebody a good friend and it comes into that conversation about their artwork and their criticism, I, I think you can have those friendly disagreements and kind of just talk through it. And so I, I, I don't know. I think there's a different role with the scholar archivist than there is with the reviewer as well. You know, the reviewer, there's a lot of real immediacy. The, the shelf life is uh, very, very limited. And so when you are a reviewer of films uh, in terms of your criticism – as the things are just coming right down the pike. And so if you're friends with Guillermo del Toro and, you know, you love Shape of Water and you love this movie or that movie, but the next movie puts out, Jolly Well could be a stinker, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, there, there, there have been efforts that have been less than awesome. I mean, Pacific Rim, less than awesome. It's fine. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. fine, but it's not it's not awesome. And uh, that's okay. Uh, There's and, a lot. There's a lot that works. Yeah. Yeah. But if I'm, you know, me and Guillermo are like buddies and we're having coffee every week and I'm like, I'm writing like a two and a half star review of Pacific Rim, which I, I jolly well might, you know, because it's a movie I like. I mean, it's, it's done well, but it's not, it's not great. Right. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, the, the, the four and a half star review I might write of Shape of Water or Pan's Labyrinth or something like that. Right. And so, and I'm not, those numbers right now, those stars are kind of arbitrary. I'm just sort of throwing stuff out there yeah, for yeah. You know, the sake. But it, I would be in a place where I would be really, really challenged to talk about that. But if it, we were talking 40 years from now and Guillermo is now in his 70s and I've cultivated a friendship with him and I'm working as a scholar and as an archivist and I'm writing this sort of you know deep analysis with a uh, big sort of production history, uh, historical kind of stuff, content to that. My friendship with, with Del Toro is different. It's like, yeah, I really like this movie more than those movies. It's just not a movie I liked as well. I don't think it's as, you know, thematically rich or whatever. And it, it's fine because it's got this greater distance on it. 
I think you're absolutely right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the the new release discussion versus the art archival discussion. Yeah. Absolutely. By the way, Arthur, I did find uh, I have read this article. In fact, it's uh, David Ehrlich is the film critic. Okay. The film is I Kill Giants by Danish filmmaker Anders Walter. That's right. Uh, and if you go to IndieWire, you can actually uh, read David Ehrlich wrote about the uh, conversation they had. Um, but uh, it does talk a little bit about social media. The the filmmaker's very first tweet he saw was David Ehrlich saying, I hate this movie. Yeah. And uh, it really, you know, stuck in the director's craw. And uh, him and David Ehrlich had an actual conversation. I, yeah. It's a really cool uh, article. Again, it's on IndieWire. Um, but, yeah, I, I, th- I think it's all how you approach it. I right, mean, well, I think there's a way in which that distance, going back to my earlier point, gives you a way in which you can sort of rank them. Like, these are the masterworks, mm-hmm. right? These and are the, the lesser and works. And these are the lesser works. And that, but obviously but I'm a fan enough because I'm writing, I'm doing the project, exactly. right? Exactly. I, I like you enough that I have opinions about what works and what doesn't work in your career. Right. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is a weird, it's a weird nebulous thing. And I think Lester Bangs does have a point about trying to keep that wall up because it makes it easier to be honest and unmerciful. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, that I mean that seems to be like the biggie on the eye chart conversationally uh, regarding this. There's a lot of other great stuff going on as far as coming of age. Um, there's this idea that just this, this discovery of art, right? Of, well, I mean, yeah, as Seamus the dog has, uh, he feels very strongly about that. Yeah, he does. And it's good that Seamus has an opinion. Because discovering art is, is a big deal. And when you discover your own art, because we all grow up in homes in which our parents have their, um, you know, canons within the canon, right? So there's the, 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 the heavy rotation of films, there's the heavy rotation of particular kinds of music, um, novels, or what, depending on what kind of family you grow up in. Mm-hmm. And then you find your own branch, Right. That part of coming of age is finding your own aesthetic. Right. And uh, so I, I don't know what, what we want to talk about. Maybe we want to talk personally. Maybe we want to talk about the idea of coming up with an aesthetic. But I, I do feel like that's a big part of character formation of the human being and a big part of what we're seeing happening with young William here in the course of Almost Famous. What do you guys have to say or think about that? I, I mean, I think you've uh, already kind of summed it up pretty Maybe succinctly yeah but i know no, no. It, it, it's a fine question it's or rather a, a, a well-observed point but yeah I, I think you've said what needs to be said is that is a huge part of the coming of age and i think one of the things uh, about the film i guess that's what we'll pivot to is less the personal aspect and how it works in uh, almost famous is really cameron crowe articulating that experience of finding the art that moves you, the art that exists separately from your parents, the art that you have to hide from your parents, uh, which I had a lot of experience with uh, growing up. Uh, my, my parents, yeah. God love them, really weird about... Uh, I'm really mad at Tipper Gore and those explicit lyrics labels. Yeah, no, it, I blame I blame Tipper Gore for... Uh, Everything. That was several years before I was born, but uh, I blame them because uh, my mom was, you know, in her early 20s when that shit was going on, and I, I blame Tipper Gore for my mom being too uptight when I was young. Uh, love you, Mom. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I had a lot of experience hiding uh, comics, video games, films, you know, all, all kinds of stuff that I was consuming that there's no way that uh, they would have been cool with. But I, I think that's what Cameron Crowe articulates so well is the, the ritual of getting out the hidden art, the lighting of the candle, the, the making sure that no one is home. I, that is an experience that I can relate to very strongly. And uh, that's what I think is really cool about that first act of Almost Famous is – is really deep diving into stuff and like slowly but surely kind of letting your parents into that world a little bit and going, hey, hey, come, come look at this weird thing I found that I think you might like. 
or, hey, let me explain to you why this thing that I think you're going to hate is actually really good. Um, and we don't get a lot of that in the two-hour cut. My understanding is there's a, a deleted scene uh, that still didn't make the director's cut because they couldn't get the rights to Stairway to Heaven. Uh, he wrote a scene, though, where William uh, makes his mom sit down and listen to the, all 11 minutes of Stairway to Heaven. Um, but it was the one song that Zeppelin would not give him the rights to use. Uh, well, you know, look, That's I, annoying. It's Stairway. I get it. They're over Stairway. Um, but I think that that's a moment that I'm, I know I had. I don't know about you guys. Uh, but the, the moment of being like, hey, c- come here. I, I'm going to convince you that this thing is good, that I'm pretty sure you're going to hate initially. So here, this this raises then the question. I'm going to ask, now I am going to get deeply personal. Okay. Um, and, and invasive in you all. This is like, I'm going to do people's history of film questions now. I'm ready. All right, so what is a piece of art that you listen to and the music or, or the, the world stopped? Like that moment with the needle drop of the Who's Tommy for Young William. Is there something like that for you? Or there's a piece of art that was so moving to you that you said, I know my folks are going to hate it, but I want them to watch this movie. I want them to read this book. I want them to hear this song. Can you name something along those lines uh, for you? If you cannot, I can vamp for time or I can go last. I, I think for me, uh, it's more of the first of that kind of that. I think we probably talked about this on people's history. Um, but for me, just kind of, you know, my experience with film through my adolescent and teen years was always the mainstream blockbuster type stuff or whatever. And some older stuff, I mean, my dad was a big Westerns guy. So I watched a lot of the old Westerns and uh, my mom loved some older movies. So like forbidden planet, things like that, you know? So, nice. I mean, that stuff was there. Um, but it still wasn't anything really against the grain as far as uh, it was classical cinema. I mean, it's exactly what I'd always known. It was just older. Um, and so I think really the first time when, I, I realized film could be something else was, was Kevin Smith's Jersey trilogy. I oh, mean, wow. You know, Clerks and Chasing Amy and, and Mallrats, right? It was It's different, especially Clerks. is much different than uh, anything else I've been watching. But I had a friend who was a big uh, Kevin Smith fan, and she loaned me these movies to watch. And I, I think uh, it was kind of just the time was right to kind of experience something else. And after that point, I was very interested in kind of – you know, independent cinema or movies that weren't, you know, traditionally well-known or things like that. And so I think that was kind of one of those moments. And and likewise, someone gave me a copy of Full Metal Jacket, Mm. um, which is, again, one of those movies that's just kind of in your face and very brazen. Uh, And so I think those those kind of had that impact. As far as the other part of that question, I don't know. I mean, there are things like, you know, like, like, there's nothing serious, like Fly of the Concords, right? I love Fly of the Concords. And so, you know, I'm listening to it in my car one day with my mom, and she's, like, getting into it. She thinks it's hilarious, right? That's great. And so stuff like that happens uh, occasionally. Uh, and, thing, you know, I'd share things like that, like uh, Love and Mercy, uh, you know, which I think is a really good movie. And my mom's a big Beach Boys and Brian Wilson fan, and so I wanted to share that with her. Uh, but I can't think of anything, like, that I would think that they would actively dislike or would be uh, something they wouldn't necessarily go for right away yeah i i, I know my parents I, I have one example that uh we'll get to uh but I, I know my folks taste pretty well um so i just don't make them watch stuff that i yeah. think they would hate yeah but um i i remember a uh, listener of the show Brigham cole uh when we were much younger uh, um i want to say 13 to 15 somewhere in that neck of the woods we would um hang out for like an entire weekend and just watch movies um you know anything that i knew i should have watched and i i Full Metal Jacket and uh, Pulp Fiction were two early mm-hmm. ones right around 14, 15 that I saw and was just like, shit, wow. 
I didn't. And for the first one on my own was a you know a very standard answer for a white guy my age is Fight Club. You know, right around that same age, around thirteen, fourteen, just seeing that and going. I didn't know movies could be like this. I didn't know. I, I knew that there were, you know, indie. I knew that there, that there were art films out there, but I didn't know a studio movie could be like this. And then, and then finding those studio films that had more and more of their feet in a kind of an experimental uh, landscape was was huge for me. I, I don't have that musically just because, you know, I, I listen to a lot of music, but, you know, I'm not a, a music guy. I'm a film guy. Yeah. It's just, you know, how, how the cards got dealt for me. Uh, but those are some of those films for me cinematically that were like big game changers and that that tommy needle drop moment uh in terms of showing stuff to my parents though in my oh i want to say probably five years ago or so so my early 20s um i i sat down and made my parents watch no country for old men and this is so years year or two longer than a year or two this is a couple of years after it, it's oscar wins and stuff after the hype it came. We were talking about Tommy Lee Jones, and I mentioned that as my favorite Tommy Lee Jones performance. And I realized that they had never seen it. I was like, "All right, I'm going to make you guys watch this because I'm old enough that I don't really care about showing you things that are kind of confrontational. I'm going to show you guys this and see what you think." My mother fucking hated it. She could not watch more than a half hour of it. She got up and walked out of the room. She's like, wow. "This is too dark. This is too heavy. I, I don't like this." Uh, yeah, my mom does not like heavy cinema. It's just not her bag. Um, my dad liked it. He, he liked it just fine. Um, I, I couldn't articulate his opinion any more than I, I do remember him enjoying it and also thinking it was quite dark. But that's the one example I have is I tried to make my mom watch No Country for Old Men, and she was not having it. And uh, that is the barometer. Anything as uh, within two ticks of uh, of No Country for Old Men. If it's if it's if we're going to say No Country for Old Men's like an eight and a half in terms of darkness, I won't go anything that's like a six and a half or above. I'm like, nah, this isn't for my mom. It's not going to happen. That's funny. Yeah. So, what do you got an example of so, any of those? Okay, needle drop moment for me, like, and the world stops. Okay. Is um okay. So I, I picked up a guitar when I was about eleven, twelve years old, and uh, started noodling around with that kind of stuff. You know, um really was into, uh, really I just uh, really was amazed by Slash from Guns N' Roses. Yeah. I mean, sort of how it began, and so I'm just going through the influence chain like you do in music. And Hendrix is important, so I'm picking up Hendrix, and I'm I, I you know I got the uh, Ultimate Experience, sort of greatest hits album. I've got the original, um, Are You Experienced. Uh, disc that he dropped and then i picked up band of gypsies which is his project after the hendrix experience broke up Mm -hmm. and it's only a live album they never got around to recording something and i literally sat and stared at the speaker for the entire runtime that's awesome of the album i could not believe what my ears were hearing that's great i mean just, just absolutely blew my mind that and it was doing it all live like yeah. there, there was no coming back in and extra takes, anything like that. Yeah. Hendrix was doing all of this stuff, you know, uh, with the, with the other two pe- uh, members of the band, and I, it was it was much funkier, it was much it was much blacker, it was much it was it was just it was just a really kind of amazing. Um, thing to uh to listen to and so that was the sort of needle drop moment for that and i went oh man there, there's something altogether out there different with music and uh sort of set me in a different uh train uh of, of thought there with what i was exploring at the moment um the other thing was uh finding an aesthetic in film mm-hmm. and that films could be really really aesthetic because i was like you guys you know i like genre movies i like action movies i like you know things with people punching other people in the face you know i mean you know revenge stories comic book stories whatever so i saw the crow 
in theaters. Um, way too young because my theater, as long as you get the money over the top of the uh, ticket counter, you could go in no matter what. Yeah, age no rules were. in a small town. No rules at all. So I saw The Crow way too young, and it came out um, on HBO or whatever. And I made my grandparents sit down and watch The Crow. What did with, they think? They did not love it. I did not imagine they would. And um, but the way I ended up selling it at the end, they were like, I don't. Know. I mean, they were like worried about me how much I loved that movie. Yeah, because like he's going to get into this terrible life, and I go those. Things were done by the bad guys. And my grandpa goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't like the bad guys. I like the good guy. And they're like, oh, okay. And that was it. But that was that that's was so funny. That's how I found this old. You know, Brandon Lee wants to you know hurt these people for being such bad people. And it's like, oh yeah. So that's so. Funny. Those are the bad guys. Okay. And, and, and my my grandmother never quite got there with it. And she's like, um. <laughs> but uh, my 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 grandpa was like, oh yeah, bad guys. But yeah, that was when I noticed a, a movie could have style. Gotcha. You know, that was like the the sort of clicking moment there. It's like it's not just telling a story. It's telling a story with a very specific sort of aesthetic, and uh, that was huge for me. And so that was that was the big moment for me uh, regarding that. Uh, I just want to get your as we're finding a stopping point here. I I, I think I want to bring it back around to one. Really, he was almost the protagonist of the film more than William Miller is uh, Billy Crabb's character, uh, Russell. Uh, Russell, genius or fraud? What do you guys think? Uh, I mean, he's a, he's an artist, and he doesn't he, he wants to be famous because he wants to be able to fund what he's doing, but he also sees that sort of problem of selling out. Like that seems to be the thing is is authenticity, right? Sincerity is he wants to be sincerely the music. He wants to be sincerely the the explorer of the human condition, but at the same time. He wants to be able to keep doing it for a living, and he knows he's going to have to get a job if he doesn't do that, right? And that's a real pressure I think the artist feels is is, is um, marketability, right? And that, that yeah. seems to be the, the, the struggle there for me. Yeah. So you, you're kind of there with that. I think that. so, yeah. I, I, I just, I'm interested in his obsession with Penny Lane and his, his refusal to uh-huh. be a good person, uh, his refusal to do the right thing by William. He only does the right thing by William because Penny Lane tricks him, you know. Yeah. Uh, although we, he tells us before he shows up at William's house, he's already made the call to Rolling Stone to say I lied. All of it's true. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I do find it interesting that um, he he doesn't admit that he wants to be famous. He uses it uh, to justify. He uses his less his quote less talented friends as his justification. Well, I see them getting bigger houses and I see them having a lifestyle and I do this for them and that's why I'm not being a better musician. Like, mm. Okay, sure, buddy. Um, I just I think there's a, a, a self denial going on in that character that's really really fascinating, um, and I think self denials are like a really interesting thing because we see in Penny Lane too this denial that she's getting yeah. attached to Russell and this um, even though she knows she's getting attached and she knows she's showing that she's getting attached she refuses to admit that there's an attachment there to the extent that she you know tries to OD on Quaaludes uh, and finally has to be like oh yeah I'm. 17 or how she never actually confirms how old she is uh there's that banter that her and william have yeah. and it's I not 16 is the last number but I, yeah. I don't know if i believe it or not i don't know yeah, yeah i don't know I don't but know. she's definitely a child yeah uh which really is very gross uh yes. I, I like it almost famous and uh i like that cameron crowe's screenplay does not shy away from how gross it is i think it lets you forget how gross it is a couple of times um and i i think it, it could have stood to let that grossness be more out in front yeah. more often. Uh, but, but I get why he let it kind of fall into the background because 
it's going to take you out of the movie the entire time if you're thinking about how gross it is the entire time, which I couldn't stop thinking about how gross it was. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think it's interesting. I, I really uh, – we, we could go on and on, but I just want to know what you guys thought about Russell and uh, the denial of self in the uh, in the film. But um, I'm good. You guys good? Did we want to talk any more about Penny Lane? Um, I mean, there is. I, a, I really like Penny Lane as I, a character. I, she's a great character, but it is that story of you know statutory rape. Oh yeah. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Is those tours um, were this crazy license to just do whatever you wanted to, and there is uh, an interrogation of that sort of corruptive level of fame that you're famous rock and roll star, and you know, I mean, there's there's. Girls everywhere, and there is a weird way in which uh, there was a there seems to have always been this preference for um, it's gross for children. I, I don't get it. I've never understood it. It's always been gross to me. Uh, even when I was sixteen, I thought people in their early thirties were way more attractive than people my age. I don't get it. <laughs> um, and I guess maybe that is what maybe that is what it is. Maybe I, I let me rephrase it. I see the attraction for the young person. That I get. I get the attraction to the older person for a 16-year-old. The maturity. And yeah, that. All, whatever. I don't get the other way around. Yeah, I don't I, either. I, I've never understood it. I've never been able to fathom it. Um, but I think I think Penny Lane's really interesting uh, because the, the film does a pretty good job of letting her be a real character. It never lets her be like a symbol for anything else. It lets uh, – and I think that comes out of the fact that uh, Cameron Crowe was friends with the the groupie, the band aid that uh, that character is based on. He was friends with that person, and I think he he wrote her as true as he could have. Um, because I, I don't know, I I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop because she seems like she's going to be a problematic character, and I kept waiting for that that moment to happen. And the closest it comes to happening is uh, William giving her a smooch while she's unconscious, which is gross. I'm not downplaying how gross that is. Um, I don't know that there's an implication that he's going to do anything other than that. Um, but it, it really becomes more of an indictment of William than anything else. He thinks he's better than these rockers and he's not at Mm -hmm. all. He's a little bit, but not really. At the end of the day, he's just a horny 16 year old boy, which is all the rockers are. They're horny 16 year olds who have refusing to grow up. Um, but I, I think Penny, um, you know, and there's something here about how men are always writing women as being more mature than men. Uh, and kind of like saying, well, you know, that real uh, pedestal, uh, benign sexism type shit, right? Where it's like, well, of course she's more mature than they are. She's a woman. Well, no, they're grownups. The, the, the men in Stillwater yeah. should be more mature. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that it gives them a pass um, or anything like that. I think it is pretty brutal to them. Um, but I just found myself really pleased with the, the fact that you know, it lets Penny Lane be real and have those moments of maturity and those moments of reminding you that she's a child and makes very dumb childish decisions like, you know, showing up in New York um, and, you know, trying to kill herself because this rock yeah. star doesn't love her. Uh, but it, it, it always feels very emotionally true in ways that I think are really interesting. Um, I like her a lot as a character. Do you guys have any problems with her portrayal at all? I mean, the only thing I would say is that uh, as you were talking about that trope of the greater maturity of mm-hmm. the woman as opposed to the men in these kinds of stories, it is a backdoor justification of statutory rape. For, oh, absolutely. You know, and, yeah. and, and that is fundamentally what's what's really problematic about I it. I don't know that Cameron Crowe lets them off the hook, though. I guess it doesn't get discussed enough, yeah. but I don't know that it lets them off the hook. I mean, it never... I I think that's a fair point, though. Um, it really should 
take Russell to task more for this ongoing love affair he has with a child. Yeah. Um, and, and it doesn't, you know, paint him as a villain quite enough. But um, that's a fair point. All righty. Well, there you go. We've had a great conversation about yeah. this movie and about a lot of things around its orbit, which was interesting, um, a different way that we've gone. We've talked – we kind of did – since this is the uh, growing up coming-of-age series, we kind of talked about coming-of-age a bit more, uh, which is – probably good and probably appropriate well as we move on to uh, our final segment where we shell for trash things i am curious arthur uh at the start of this marathon with uh stand by me you posited uh this question for the group of what is a coming of age movie to you uh do you feel like almost famous checks all those boxes do you feel like it's a good coming of age film i do i i, I mean and again for me it's always i think that challenge of ideology and seeing a different part of the world that you're not familiar with. And I, I think William experiences that. I think he kind of sees that and he's not always on board with it. And he, he kind of has to face these ugly realities. It's, you know, you never meet your heroes and, and he has to meet his heroes and it's not the, uh, the greatness he, I think kind of uh, expired to. And it, it, uh, it outweighs his naivety uh, that he initially starts with. And so, yeah, I, I think it does check those boxes. He goes on his adventure and his quest or, uh, encounters these characters and, and his world has changed and he kind of sees things differently uh, by the time we get to the the end of the film. So yeah, I, I think it's a good coming of age film. Dustin, what about I, your, I believe your criteria was um, the slaying of a monster. Of some yeah, sort. Hansel, it was a real Hans on Gretel thing. Yeah, and I don't know that that really happens. I mean, that that's, that's a thing in which he does have new eyes to look at the world, but I think he's still carrying a lot of the weight with him. I think he's still carrying a lot of his baggage with him. I think he's still carrying uh, even this sort of a strained relationship with his mom with him, um, you know, in which uh, she she still – I mean she sees him more as an adult now, but th- it, it's not quite the same thing. And he still hasn't confronted with um, – he's not really confronted his own sort of um, – I think the witch for his case would probably be just his own um, lack of self-confidence. Right, and I think I think that's still all present, you know. And so um, there's, it's, it's written in a way in which there's a lot more story to go. Yeah, and I, I think I would agree with that. Um, for for me, uh, th- that kind of ties into my thoughts in, in that you know it, it it has that aesthetic truth, you know that that true lying to be true for William's sake for the Car- Cameron Crowe author insert character. Um, and as Arthur mentioned, yeah, he has an ideology, he has it challenged, but I, I think there is lying that does not service the truth, if that makes sense, because there is still some real rose-colored glasses about the world of rock and roll, and I think it, it gets paid lip service to at best by the Lester Banks character, but I don't think there is a real interrogation of commercialization of art, there's not a comer- uh, a uh, interrogation of statutory rape in the 70s rock and roll scene, there's not an interrogation of, of a lot of things that I think there could be. Um, there's also what feels like a really not tasteful early 2000s gay joke. Uh, oh, yeah. Because yeah, that, yeah. that beat in the airplane, th- that beat feels like a joke. It, it's weird because I can see reading that on a page and thinking, oh, wow, that's that's really heavy for this member of this band who never talks to when they finally think they're going to die, the reason he's quiet all the time is because he's living his life in the closet. Mm-hmm. As it plays in the film, it plays as a joke. Yeah. Uh, and I think that just kind of, that was the moment where the film stamped itself as intellectually, emotionally dishonest for me a little bit, mm. uh, as at least as it pertains to the world that William Miller like lives. 
but I think the the personal honesty, uh, you know, as Cameron Crowe's semi autobiographical work, I think that's there for sure. I just I wish he had challenged. You know, he, he as Arthur mentioned, he meets his heroes and is challenged by that. I wish that had turned into Cameron Crowe challenging this world that he's in love with a little bit more. Because uh, there are times where, and I'm sure Cameron Crowe would probably be the first person to tell you this, he still wants to be one of the cool kids uh, yeah. at times, even though Lester Bangs told him, you're uncool and that's your greatest currency. So that's that's where I'm at with it. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, there you go. Let's go under a verdict on this film. What do you say, guys? Show for trash, Elster instead, Arthur, go. I, I I like it. I think I'll put it on the shelf. Uh, personally, I, I I just in my wheelhouse, and so yeah, I'll I'll, I'll stick it on there. Uh, I I really like to see the the theatrical cut. I think it might be a stronger film, uh, but I I think the elements are there and enough there to uh, put it on the shelf for me. I think uh, else I'd say uh, I'm, I've name dropped it. I'd say Love and Mercy uh, would be a good pairing with this. Uh, the the kind of the life of Brian Wilson and the and the his time with the Beach Boys and his time after the Beach Boys and just. Uh, to see the actual kind of state of the the rocker and kind of where they're at, uh, I'd say Dazed and Confused pair as well. Yep, one uh, one of my pairings as well. Yeah, and finally I'd say Crazy Heart and Jeff Bridges. Uh, I think it'd be uh, kind of the the latter days, the the aged out dying uh, rock star, and just kind of see where where life goes uh, with that. And so those would be my pairings with uh, Almost Famous. Nice, well played, well played. What do you say, Dalton Stewart? I, I'm also going to shelf it. It's a very soft shelf for me. Um, I don't really know that it's an essential film, but it's the best Cameron Crowe movie I've ever seen. Uh, he's kind of a blind spot for me, in fairness, though. Um, but it's a great performance from uh, Kate Hudson, from Patrick Fugit, from Billy Crudup, from Jason Lee. I think you've got four great performances uh, and a great supporting Francis McDormand and a great supporting uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. So I think all those performances are, are, are interesting enough that I, I think it's worth visiting for for fans of music. Um, so very very soft shelf. I don't I don't dislike it enough to trash it though. Um, what should you pair with it? Uh, my very first pick is a, another period piece, coming of age film, Twentieth uh, Century Women, which has a great Billy Crudup, probably my favorite Billy Crudup performance. Um, but a, a film that came out last year, year before last. Uh, I struggle to remember the exact release date, but. Uh, Really great film uh, with a just a, a fantastic cast. Um, really strongly recommend that Greta Gerwig. Um, God, I forget Elle Fanning. Um, I forget who plays the. Is mom. that Julianne Moore? No, it's not Julianne Moore. Damn it! Um, I'm going to go ahead and look it up and vamp for a second because I'm going to feel Binning? better. There it is. It is Annette Benning. Thank you. Uh, really great film from the the director of Beginners, uh, which is a film about his father, and this is a film about his mother. Oh, uh, okay. And that's that's the thing I like about it. It is a film about kind of the same time period. The, I like Beginners. The early '70s and you know growing up raised by women. And I just a film that I really like and has a great Billy Crudup. Um, I would also recommend High Fidelity, my uh, favorite film about music. Um, this is obviously a film about music, but I, I think High Fidelity nails that that being a fan of music a little bit better, just in the in terms of the style of that film. It kind of integrates uh, music appreciation to the film a little bit better. Um, and finally, I'm going to say, I don't know if anybody remembers this movie, uh, Wrist Cutters, A Love Story. Uh, I know the movie. Yep. You guys know the movie? Yeah. yeah. Pat- Patrick Fugit's yep. uh, really big role. Um, that at least people among a certain age uh, really love him in that movie, myself included. Uh, it was, God, everybody I knew when I was 18 uh, was a fan of that movie and watched yeah. that movie. Yeah. No. But uh, I really like that film. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember loving Patrick Fugit in it. So that is going to be my, my final recommend. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much for that. I am going to say trash. Uh, nah. 
I mean, it's good, but it's not essential. Don't you don't need to buy it. You don't need to catch up to it. I'm kind of glad you put it in the trash because I honestly only didn't put it in the trash because it felt mean. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. be mean to it, but it, I mean, because it is such a sweet movie. You're but, not a good critic, Dalton. You're, yeah. You know what? I'm not going to change my mind just because I'm not going to just follow Dustin's lead, but I'm going to stand by very soft shelf. Yeah, but I think its sweetness is its problem, is it it smooths too many edges. And yes, uh, and that's that's where it really kind of falls down for me. So what instead should you watch? Um, probably Hard Day's Night, um, the great uh, uh, Lester – Richard Lester, I was like, I was trying. I was, You're gonna Lester, say Lester Banks. Lester Banks is too much. Yeah, Richard Lester um, film about the Beatles, um, and it's very, very fun and silly. Um, I think Penelope Spheris' decline of Western civilization. If you really want that sort of fly on the wall interview kind of feel uh, with that early part one in, or part two. Part one. You want to go into part two? Which is, nope. Well, here's the thing. That I think is interesting. Having only seen bits and pieces of part two, I think part two tells the story that Almost Famous is kind of trying to tell is. The turning of rock and roll into something overly commercial uh, and overly maybe. debaucherous. Yeah, there there might be something to that. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's what part two is all about: is hair right. metal, yeah, hair and metal. like yeah, rock and roll as as artifice. I still like hair metal, so it's well, I, yeah. I don't, don't want to recommend. You don't it. watch it because you like the music. You watch it because it's an interesting cultural piece. Yeah, I guess you do that. Yeah, um, but then also just because you like to laugh and you like to have fun and you want to watch a big fun comedy about rock and roll. So how about a Rock and roll comedy with Brandon Fraser, uh, Steve Buscemi, and Adam Sandler. That's right, Airheads. I like that movie a lot. <laughs> that movie's so much fun. And uh, yeah, have you seen this movie? Right I haven't there? seen it. I, I'm familiar, but I haven't seen it. We should do that on this the show. Take, uh, the it's take it hostage, right? The yep. DJ or something. Yeah, yeah they, they it, hold the radio station hostage. Yeah, that's right. It, I haven't seen Kevin Nealon's got a good turn, and Joe Montana's in it. Uh, it it's fun. It, it's a good movie. It's uh, a good group. I like it a lot, so I recommend that also instead. And I don't care. Moving right along, I hear we're going to do one more movie for the marathon. It is a marathon, Dustin. Okay. That means we have to do one more. One more? So that, that makes it three. Yeah, I guess. And then it's over. Buddy, we are going to keep you on one more for a couple of weeks. Yeah, at least a couple of weeks. I guess uh, it's time. We've, we've, we've hit the 70s, so I guess we need to move into the 80s. Uh, we're really shifting gears. We're going to go uh, west coast. We're going out west. I want to be a cowboy. Um well, we're we're going further south because uh, I think Williams from uh, Sacra- Sacramento, right? Sacramento, maybe, yeah, or yeah. San Francisco. I think I Sacramento. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, so we're going to go further south to to South Central Los Angeles. Yeah, we're going to Crenshaw. We're going to we're going to see the streets. Uh, we might we might see a dead body. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about we'll talk about <laughs> we'll talk about going to see a dead body next week. Uh, but yeah, we're uh, we're we're going to hang out with Doughboy, uh, Ricky. Uh, and we're going to have a good time as we talk about Boys in the Hood. John Singleton's directorial debut from 1992? 91. 91, okay. He was the youngest. Uh, to this no- day, still the youngest. And the first uh, African-American to be nominated for Best Director. Uh, so we are we are going to get into that one. And uh, we're probably going to talk about some uh, movies we've already talked about. We definitely will be talking about at least one movie we have already talked about. That is for darn sure. As it is directly quoted. Uh, we're going to be talking about... Uh, uh, a lot of things uh, that we talk about, uh, cycles of violence and uh, masculinity. Uh, so uh, it'll be a good time. Very excited to talk about Boys in the Hood. Excellent. I think the musical stylings will be slightly different. We'll have a different aesthetic uh, next week. So uh, Some would say better. <laughs> I would tend to agree. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all happening. Uh, by some, I meant me. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but well, I'll tell you what's going to be fun about it. It's going to be the conversation because that's why we do what we do is to keep talking about these movies because there's so much more than just that 90-minute experience in the bucket of popcorn. It is about the conversation. So you keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. Trash genre cast brought to you by the Good Trash Media Network. For all things good trash, head on over to goodtrashmedia.com. Our intro music is made by Fred the Show, Aaron Rodgers, and our outro music is the song Fever Dog by the fictional band Stillwater.